Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the you're trying too hard to help when you should just be handing over your cash edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I'm joined by economics journalist Annie Lowry, a staff writer at The Atlantic who just published a long article in The New York Times magazine about a pilot project to implement a universal basic income in more than 100 African villages and the American nonprofit that's running it. And then the concept of full employment is fundamental to the way monetary policy is conducted. But is it complete nonsense? My colleague on Alphaville, Matt Klein, sparked a debate among economists when he argued exactly that. He'll join us in our second segment. But... First up, Atlantic staff writer Annie Lowry, who is now writing a book about the idea of universal basic income. She joins me now. Annie, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing, Cardiff? Good. So listen, a couple of weeks ago, we had a chat about uh, the universal basic income, but it was in the context of advanced economies, rich countries, basically. And the idea was that it could be either a supplement to like the existing welfare state or that at least if you implemented a UBI now, then the infrastructure to scale it up would exist if we ever all started losing our jobs because of automation. Your article was about the implementation of a UBI in a very different context. So why don't you talk about how you came across this idea um, and then tell us about the places you went to and the conditions as you found them. Yeah, absolutely. So I had known these guys who uh, run this charity called Give Directly for a couple of years now. And they had started off, they're both economics PhD students at Harvard when they came up with this idea to give really, really low income Kenyans, uh, like pennies a day Kenyans, a thousand dollar lump sum grants and let them do whatever they wanted with the money. And the idea behind this was basically that there's been a bunch of studies that have shown that cash transfers are really effective and more cost effective specifically at reducing poverty than things like giving up food vouchers or food itself or things that charities like to do, like giving sports equipment and, you know, school uniforms and stuff, which very often has absolutely no effect on these people's lives whatsoever. And so now what they're doing is they're running a UBI experiment where instead of giving people a really large sum of money on their mobile phone, they're going to send them um, monthly payments for a period of 12 years. And they're doing it to whole villages. So they'll take everybody in a village and they'll give them money provided they're over the age of 18. So it's this really, really crazy experiment. And so I went out there twice in the fall and I'm going to try and go back later this year now that they're like sort of receiving the money and spending it. And yeah, I mean, it was amazing. It's just, it's very, very remote. People have cell phones, but there's no indoor plumbing. There's no electricity. They mostly get around by foot or by mutatu, which are these little shared buses. And in a lot of ways, it wasn't, 
it felt a little bit like the 1700s, right? Like they farm by hand, they construct their houses by hand, they dig latrines by hand. In some cases, they don't even do that. And they do have access to some kind of modern things, like you can get to a hospital, sort of. But by and large, life is pretty much how it was in some cases like 100 years ago, except for the cell phones, which is really funny. Kenyans love cell phones. All of them have them. (laughs) You know, I I was familiar also with those studies that you just mentioned about how cash transfers can work often better than giving an asset to villagers or conditioning um, the cash on some kind of behavior. But there's a really kind of astounding uh, statistic in your piece, which is that 94% of all aid is not in cash. Why do you think that is? I think that basically places are set up to do what they are set up to do in the way that their donors would like. So it's probably important to draw a distinction between kind of development aid. So these are like, you know, the big government grants for things like inoculations and vaccines, which are very, very cost effective or, you know, things like building roads, kind of the World Bank stuff. What we're mostly talking about here is is true charity. So this is like, you know, individual Americans sending their money over to disperse goods or pay for services. And this just, you know, places do what they like to do. And if you are a charity that like hands out goats and somebody comes to you and says, hey, it would be way more effective if you handed out cash, you know, you're you're the goat charity. That's what you're set up to do. And you'd probably have to fire a lot of people if you were just going to start sending people money over their mobile phones. So I think that's one thing. And then I also think that there continues to be this belief that if you give people cash, they'll misspend it, despite the fact that there have now been numerous, numerous studies that show when you give money to the very poor, they in fact spend it on really, really useful things and not on things like cigarettes or alcohol. And what was kind of crazy was it took me so long to get out to these like little villages. You couldn't even buy booze out there if you wanted to. And being there, it seemed so silly to think that these people, many of whom were experiencing issues with hunger, had not eaten meat in months, would be spending the money on like cigarettes. It's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. This idea that uh, the way a lot of aid works uh, is that it's meant to make the people providing the aid feel better rather than actually targeting the uses that would make it uh, the most helpful is, is really kind of interesting. Um, but you, you also describe in your piece, and I'm wondering if you can relate this to our listeners as well, the reaction of everybody when they found out that they were going to be given this really kind of astonishing amount of money for the next 12 years. Can you just take us through that? Yeah, so this happened at a, um, it's called a barazo, which is like a community meeting. So these are tribal communities. There's a village chief, and they got everybody under a tent. These people, they're part of a tribe called the Luo. And so they had um, Give Directly staffers who are of the Luo people who stood there and kind of explained what they were going to do. But they went through this like two hour long thing where they're like, you cannot be involved in terrorism. You have to have your own phone. And then finally, at the end, this one guy got up and was like, we're going to send you $20 a month every month for the next 12 years years and the village like lost its shit basically like kids started dancing there was like some people brought out a couple bottles of soda which is really hard to get out there these glass bottles of soda which they then like presented to the white people and I had to be like no 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 not for me (laughs) what was funny was that I interviewed a lot of the villagers about their plans for the money and some of them really were kind of thinking longer range these two elderly sister wives who I met who are widows and live right next door to each other uh, were going to make a little bank so they were going to pool their money and lend it out to their friends and their family. But some people were so poor that they actually couldn't really think on that kind of a time frame. And I said, OK, what's going to be different 10 years from now? And they would be like, well, the roof will be fixed and maybe we'll have some more goats. And I don't know what else, you know. And so I think that's one of the things even when I go back, I really want to follow up on is, 
is, you know, do they start thinking longer range because they don't have to worry about, you know, where their next meal is going to come from or whether they're going to be able to buy clean water? So the the universal part of universal basic income uh, seems to be pretty important here because you also described a village that you went to that started receiving cash transfers, but only for some households a few years ago. And there's this idea that I think, as you put it, the social fabric of the village gets strained because there's a certain sense of resentment that some people are getting the money and some aren't. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that this is one of the few consonances that you have with um, UBI in a high income country context, right? Like we really stigmatize welfare recipients in the United States. We think a lot about uh, welfare as a program for parents and, and not for their children, despite the fact that what you're really trying to do there is, is target childhood poverty in many cases. Whereas the universal benefits, so like social security, you know, like nobody ever asks you like, oh, are you spending your social security money on like drugs and booze, right? But we think a lot about like, are you spending your welfare payment on drugs and booze? And I think that's because, you know, welfare is stigmatized and means tested. In the context of this village, yeah, it really helps preserve the social fabric. And and notably, GiveDirectly points to this number that less than 1% of recipients had kind of an adverse incident, like having their money stolen or, you know, being threatened or injured because they had received the money. But it was really hard on staff members who said that they would go to some members of a community and not others, described it as kind of hard to do. And very often these people are so low income that like there's some pressure to share it and to spread it around. And it's just it can be a little bit difficult for people. And I think that doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. But, you know, the thing about the universal basic income is like everybody gets it. And so you don't have those questions. And in fact, within one of the villages that I went to, they were even starting to negotiate how they were going to tell their family members who lived outside of the village, because the way that Give directly set it up in order to run the experiment, new people moving to the village could not receive it. You had to be there when Give Directly sort of registered everybody to avoid people just flooding into these really tiny villages that are basically just made up of families. Something that's uh, intriguing about Give Directly itself is that it gets a lot of its funding from Silicon Valley. And you'd think that in their case, their interest is in finding out whether or not a universal basic income will be useful societally if Silicon Valley itself ends up putting us all out of business, essentially, because they come up with great AI or eventually they come up with just some new kind of technology we've never thought of that can do even cognitively heavy, you know, heavily demanding work better than uh, humans can. But given that these projects are all happening in Kenya and I guess in other parts of Africa, are they confident that whatever is learned from these projects, um, whatever lessons are learned will be transferable to the U.S. and Europe and other advanced economies? I mean, do, do you get a sense that they've thought that through well enough? I would say that there's only really a few things that this is going to tell us about what would happen if we did this here, right? So people are people, and I think the stuff about the social fabric is interesting. GiveDirect is also running a general equilibrium study on this. So there's this kind of question, if you give everybody UBI, what happens to inflation? We don't know. Like, people kind of guess. Uh, we have no idea. GiveDirect is going to try and look at that question. And so there's, you know, a question, you know, Kenya is very different than the United States, but maybe not that different. Maybe you'll learn something about that. But no, you know, it is this weird thing where the arguments that lead you to support UBI in the context of a Kenya or even a country like an in India, and India is considering doing this now, are really different than the ones that lead you to think about it for the United States or Canada or even like a Finland or something. There is kind of like one intellectual thread that runs through both of them, which I think is interesting. So 
Danny Roderick at Harvard wrote this really great paper on something he calls premature deindustrialization, which is this notion that automation is not just going to reduce jobs in high income countries, but lower income countries are never going to see the jobs gains brought about by trade that like China did because the robots have gotten so good so fast. So like Vietnam is not going to see as many jobs as China did. And then like Kenya will never see as many jobs as Vietnam from industrialization. And so maybe this is one way in which robots are coming for kind of like Kenyan and Vietnamese jobs, not just American jobs. But that's like a bigger, longer range sort of thing. One thing that's interesting about India versus Kenya is India has the tax base for a UBI. They estimate that a UBI worth 5% of GDP would completely eliminate poverty or bring the poverty rate from like 20% down to less than 1%. And India can do that because it's big and it's, you know, it's fairly rich, right? Even if it has lots of poor people, Kenya or Zimbabwe can't do that, right? The money has to come from someplace else. You couldn't possibly raise the tax funds to do it in those really low income countries. Yeah, no, I I thought of the Roderick piece uh, going into your article, right? Because it's worth mentioning also that there is something, uh, at least economists believe, uniquely powerful about manufacturing, right? That it has certain spillover effects, that if you look at the development processes, certainly of most East Asian economies that have tried them, but before that, Germany and the U.S., it was always industry that led the way because you have all of these kind of knowledge spillovers, you learn about processes, and the technology itself turns out to be useful in other industries. But after I read your piece, I was like, wait a minute. These places aren't anywhere close to being able to scale up that way. I mean, we're still talking about the very basics. We're talking about poverty alleviation. We're not talking about going from middle income uh, status to like the edge of the technology frontier, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a very, very big world. And I, I do. I think that there are a surprising number of low and middle income countries that could be touched by that thesis. But for a lot of complicated reasons, the continent of Africa, which is obviously enormous, hasn't seen the same kind of industrialization that you've seen in Asia. And so probably it matters more for those countries over there. Technology itself, though, is still an important part of this story. Apparently, the money's being mostly transferred via cell phones, which might be surprising given the way you describe the villages themselves. But like the, the proliferation of cell phones throughout Africa, including some of the poorest parts of sub-Saharan Africa, is one of the big stories of like the last decade. And yet you found someone, uh, I think a, an old lady who just didn't know what she was doing with it, had her money stolen because she didn't know how to uh, use the phone itself. I mean, can you just talk about the role of technology in this process? Yeah. So I guess it's it's worth saying that a lot of countries do cash, right? Like a lot of low income countries do cash as government programs. So famously, you know, like Oportunidades and Bolsa Familia and uh, some of those are conditional, some are unconditional, right? So you can do cash without having a cell phone, but it's really cheap to do cash if you do have a cell phone. And so Kenyans love it's the, the product which was created in part by Britain's DFID and then I think Vodafone in the mid aughts. Um, created this thing called M-Peso, which basically lets you transfer money really easily, really cheaply, and put money on your phone really cheaply. So, you, you know, these little tiny shacks in the middle of nowhere in Kenya and Uganda become tiny banks. And this has just made this easy to do and also a little bit accountable, right? Like these people all have their own separate phone numbers. It makes it easy for Give Directly to follow up with them. That said, uh, yeah, especially some of the older villagers that I spoke with, and there's all these details that got cut from the piece, but one woman, I asked her, you know, like how old she was, and she was like, I have no idea. And she was like, I could guess because I remember this guy getting assassinated. And I was like, well, I don't know when that happened either. <laughs> 
And so, you know, they don't have a relationship with technology. They don't have electricity. And actually, the people in these villages will go to little tiny market centers in the side of the road to go charge their phones because if you have no electricity, you have no phone charger. So, yeah, it does create vulnerabilities. GiveDirectly tries to be really, really good about following up with people like that woman, Angelina, who, you know, did get her money stolen. Again, it's pretty rare. But it's worth noting that, yeah, technology is enabling things like these mass cash transfer programs across the world, right? Like India probably wouldn't be talking about this, except that they have this biometric ID system, um, which would help them, you know, kind of do the mass transfers. And it is. It's just really, really cheap to do. Like, I think give directly, it's like more than 90 cents on the dollar that actually just goes straight out to recipients. Um, they don't have high overhead, and it's one argument for it. A while ago on this podcast, uh, I asked Angus Deaton about cash transfer programs. I was a little bit surprised that he was somewhat skeptical of them. And his main point was that so many of the governing institutions that surround these places are corrupt or weak, that even cash transfer programs will just end up in the wrong hands. So it might help for you know however long those transfers are in place, but that it's not necessarily the case, number one, that the ideas are scalable, and number two, that they're sustainable. Um, did you get any any sense of whether or not uh, you can tell just from your observations while you were while you were in those villages? Yeah. So interesting. Go back to the India example. One of the arguments for UBI in India is that they lose a ton of money. So they have, an, I mean, dozens and dozens, scores and scores and scores of federal anti-poverty programs or government anti-poverty programs in India. And a lot of them see a lot of the money wasted or lost or abused or whatever. And so I do think that there are circumstances in which this would be a better and a cheaper and a safer way to do it. But that's a, you know, like it's not a panacea and there's problems this isn't going to solve. Like going back to what we were talking about before, I think one of the arguments against this too is like, should you be helping these places build better institutions to increase rates of growth, which in the long term is another way that you're going to lift people out of poverty, right? I think that the strongest case for just giving cash is, you know, for these charities, right? Like if you are handing out sports equipment, you should be giving out cash. You just absolutely should. But that's certainly not to say that, you know, you should be shutting down this program that's establishing the rule of law in this country and spending that money as cash, right? Maybe you want to like check the cash effectiveness, uh, you know, check against a cash baseline in some cases. But sometimes I think that the argument can be sort of transmuted into places that it doesn't necessarily belong. Like mm -hmm. in this story, especially, we were just talking about charity and not talking about like kind of government programs or NGO money that might transfer, you know, USAID or something like that. Right. One last question. It's actually a, a question about methodology. Esther Duflo gave this speech earlier this year about how an economist should be in a way like a plumber. So rather than just installing something once, the economist should continue tinkering with their ideas, right? So a lot of development economists also, they'll, they'll look for places where there are natural experiments or they'll put in place an experiment in the field and then they'll judge whether or not it succeeded or did not succeed. Her point is that economists should actually remain a little bit more involved than that, that they should keep tinkering with their ideas because just because something doesn't work the first time doesn't mean that you have to abandon all of the idea. You can start experimenting within the experiment itself. It kind of seems like these give directly guys fit into that mold a little bit. I don't even have a question here. Can you kind of talk about their approach to learning whether or not uh, this idea is having an impact um, and whether or not they encountered any frictions in the way that they implemented the idea, given that aid has functioned so differently you know, until now? 
I think that the grandest version of their idea is that the world could eliminate extreme poverty pretty cheaply through a kind of scalable cash transfer system. And the notion that their charity is not constrained by anything except for resources, except for cash, right? Like they could hypothetically at least send every Kenyan and Ugandan with a cell phone money, you know, in a matter of, of years. It would be pretty cheap and pretty easy for them to do. But they are really interestingly open to the idea that giving lump sums is more effective than UBI is. And there's probably a bunch of different arguments about like one versus the other. You know, if you're giving a Kenyan a thousand dollars, like how does that change their life versus ensuring that they're not going to fall into poverty again in 12 years? That's one of the questions that they're trying to answer. And I appreciate their kind of, you know, fidelity. It was sort of funny when, when they were talking about the founding of the charity too, they were like, we were open to the idea that this was just terrible and wouldn't work and wouldn't be practical and would be a waste of money, in which case we were happy to shut down. It was more that we just had this idea and we we're going to chase it out. And notably, they're having independent evaluators. I think it's Innovations for Poverty Action that's doing the data collection and running the randomized control trial that they're running. So you'll get you know, some economists that are not actually affiliated with them doing the data analysis on this to show whether UBI or lump sum is more cost effective. I lied. I've actually got one one extra question. I brought this up a couple of weeks ago when we were also talking about UBI with my uh, colleague Martin Sanbu. The financial sector seems to be pretty good at finding ways of screwing everything up, right? So if you have a dependable income stream going out to 12 years, what if somebody sets up a bank and says, I'll lend you all of this money against that future income stream, and then you end up blowing it, right? And then the sort of the purpose of the project kind of falls apart, right? Because you don't have you don't have this dependable thing because you ended up encumbering it as collateral in some kind of a deal with a bank, right? Do you know if if any kinds of protections around this money are being considered or if you even think that that would be a good idea? In other words, if you can make this unencumberable. One thing about GiveDirectly, they're like, you can take the money and do whatever you want with it. So I think if you said, all right, great, I'm going to arrange a lump sum, you know, I'm going to talk with a financial institution, which in this case would probably just be another villager right. and set something up where I'm going to promise to send them their money if they'll lend me money now. I think that they would be fully in support. I mean, they really do want to not tell people what to do with the money. And they're like, if you want to go drink it away, great. And yeah, as I mentioned, there were those sisters who were pooling their money and trying to pull in other old women who weren't dealing with the worst of the hunger and health issues that other people were dealing with to do precisely that. And actually, I'd ask them, I was like, oh, are you going to charge interest? And they're like, no, but we're not lending to men because we don't trust them. <laughs> we're only lending to women, uh, which I thought was kind of hilarious. And so, yeah, I mean, it would be it would be interesting. It's hard for me to imagine financialization among these people, just given that none of them have any relationship relationship with any kind of banking infrastructure outside of M-Pesa uh, and just giving how their how their lives are. But I do think it would be really fascinating if you could see more so kind of like public economics happening with it, right? Like what if a village said, all right, everybody, you're going to give us like a little bit of your money and we're going to tax you, but we're going to use it on public goods, right? We're going to install a fresh water tap or we're going to try and get a power line or we're going to arrange to buy a motorbike so that we can get to the um, hospital. You know, that I, th I think you could imagine them doing that. And that would be really exciting. Annie, what's the title of your book and when can we expect it? So I had wanted to title it um, Communism for Capitalists, but I got overruled by the publisher. <laughs> so it's currently called Give People Money. We'll see if that title sticks around. And yeah, it should be out later this year. Oh, great. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, before Thank I let you, you go, though, long form recommendations. What do you think our listeners should be uh, watching or reading or listening to? 
Yeah. So there is a really, really good story in The Guardian about Robert Mercer and his propaganda network and uh, this new crop of uh, right wing billionaires who are shaping American politics. It's really good. It's by um, Carol. Cal- I don't know how to say her name. Carol Caldwallader. But but you should look that up. Annie Lowry. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Cardiff. And in the second segment, I'm joined by my Alphaville colleague, Matt Klein, who recently caused a ruckus, or at least as much of a ruckus as you're going to find in the economics blogosphere anyways, for his critique of the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, or the NERU. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, I don't want to scare away our listeners just yet by bringing up NERU, okay? So let me just explain the concept and why this conversation matters, right? The basic idea behind the relationship between uh, unemployment and inflation goes something like this. If you have a very high unemployment rate, it means obviously that there's a lot of people out of work. And that means that companies can offer lower wages to the workers who come to them in search of a job because the companies have essentially their pick of workers, right? And then the opposite also holds, which is that if you have a very low unemployment rate, then companies have to compete for the few remaining workers, and one of the ways they compete is by offering higher wages, right? Now, those low wages in the former case or those high wages in the latter case translate to overall inflation because, of course, if you're paying your workers more, they have more money to spend. They spend that money on goods. As that money gets spent in the economy, the overall price level starts to climb because, again, similar concept, more money chasing fewer things, so the inflation rate goes up. So that's the relationship we're talking about here. That unemployment, okay, if it's high, means lower wages, and that means lower inflation. Unemployment, if it's low, means higher wages and therefore high inflation. That's the basic relationship. It's usually embodied in something that economists refer to as the Phillips curve, right? Also very important is the fact that this relationship is thought to underpin monetary policy. It does so explicitly in the case of the U.S. where the Fed is supposed to target both full employment and stable inflation, and as it defines stable inflation is 2% headline, okay? So you recently wrote a post critiquing the very concept of the NERU, right? Or it's sometimes known the natural uh, unemployment rate. Take us through your critique. Sure. So there are two basic questions. One is, does this theoretically make sense? And two is, even if it does theoretically make sense, is this a knowable variable that is useful for making forecasts of inflation and therefore useful for policy? I think that on the second point, it's pretty uncontroversial to say the answer is no. I think also on the first point, you can also say it doesn't make sense theoretically. But I mean, I focus mostly on on the second point in my post. If you have a pretty simple model of inflation essentially being what was inflation just recently, what did the dollar do? What did oil do? That is going to give you a pretty reasonable predictive power for what inflation will be. Because inflation is, at least since Volcker brought inflation down, so we're talking the past you know 30 three, 34 years, it's been pretty stable within a range. And that, as I said, that very simple model, it tends to be whatever it just was, plus a little variation. If you add in any knowledge about the unemployment rate, you don't get any extra information. That's a key thing. This is a lot of people have, have found this empirically. And the question is, if that's true, then why do people believe that there's this thing called the NERU? And the argument that they make is, well, the NERU changes. There are all these structural features of the economy that can change, whether it's changes in unemployment insurance or welfare reform or technological you know, productivity or globalization, whatever. These things can move the NERU up and down. 
let's suppose that that's true. If that is true, it doesn't mean the neighbor is useful because you can't predict what those policy changes are going to be and how they're going to influence the Nehru in a way that's useful for monetary policy. I mean, I think one of the most striking examples, it's not the only one, but it's very striking, is if you look in the mid-1990s, Janet Yellen was at the Fed then, and she was probably either the most hawkish or second most hawkish person there because she relied on a model uh, for predicting inflation that used unemployment. And she saw the unemployment rate was getting close to 5.5%, and she thought that the Nehru probably was around 5.5%. And so she was one of the people who's most interested in raising interest rates. Other people said, well, we don't really know how this neighbor thing works. Let's see what happens. It turns out the unemployment rate stayed below 5.5% from that point when she pointed out for like the next 10 years. And inflation stayed below, below where it was at the point from when she said for basically the next 10 years. So that sort of breaks it down. There's another more recent example, which is pretty striking, which is during the crisis. During the crisis, you have the unemployment rate go up to like 10%. At the time, Fed staffers and other people, they were making forecasts using you know sort of their standard benchmark model, including the unemployment rate. And they said, well, probably by around where we are now, the inflation rate will be back to around 2%. The implication being you have essentially a couple of years of close to zero inflation, and then the unemployment rate would gradually come back down. And then eventually, you know, 2013 or so, it turned, you know, maybe 1% or something. Then you start by 2014, 2015, it'd be around back to 2%. That's clearly not what happened. And by the time you get to 2011 transcripts, which just came out, you have a whole discussion about why this didn't happen. In fact, inflation, by the time you get to the beginning of 2011, was actually significantly faster then than it is now, even though the unemployment rate now is much closer to what people think of as being the Nehru now than then. And there was a funny debate about it, and they tried to analyze it. No one really had a good explanation. They did surveys of the people who are at the Fed. To be clear, at the time, there was uh, spiking oil and food prices. That's right. That's right. But even so, it's still a situation where the unemployment rate was 10%. And according to the standard theory, unless you thought the Nairu had gone from you know, five or so to like nine and a half, it still wouldn't explain even with the you know the, the commodity thing. So people were, I mean, you had this range of estimates. There's a, there's a wonderful table, and I, I put this in, in the post, where you know they say, okay, well, before the cri- what do you think it was before the crisis? What do you think it is now? What do you think it will be in 2015? And there's just this incredible range of answers. Like before the crisis, I mean, I think it's only the Dallas Fed, to their credit, they were like, well, we think it's probably the Nehru fundamentally is the Nehru, whatever it is, consistently. Everyone else was like, oh, it was five, and now it's like eight, and then it's going to go back to six or something. But you know, what basis they have for that? Now, of course, we're actually in, well, now we're in 2017, but in 2015, then they thought, well, actually, no, it's not going to be six, it's going to be five, and then it keeps going down. So there's basically no way to explain the inflation data we've had since 2008 using a Nehru framework, unless you think the Nehru was incredibly volatile. And in fact, if you look at the data that's officially published for the Nehru that the Congressional Budget Office puts out, which is something that they define retrospectively, um, you do see this big up and down in the neighborhood. But that's only because we know that inflation was stable and the unemployment rate moved around like crazy. So empirically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Then there's the theory point, which is, I didn't spend as much time on this, but I think there's, you know, it's, it's worth looking into, which is it's perfectly reasonable to say that the unemployment rate affects the bargaining power of workers. That, I think, is, should be uncontroversial. But the question is, how does that flow through to consumer prices? Because a lot of what's in the consumer price index isn't necessarily things that actually are people's wages, for one thing. And for two, then there's the distinction between real wages and, and nominal wages and how it flows through the price. I mean, you look at the consumer price index, right? A third of it is housing. A lot of that is imputed. You have a big chunk that's healthcare, and you have a big chunk that's imported goods. 
So in terms of where most people actually work in the economy, the linkage is very is very weak there. And it probably explains why if you do a simple scatter plot, you get almost a perfectly meaningless relationship. It's like a you know the R squared for you know you really want to nerd it's like zero point zero zero two or something between a change in the unemployment rate and the change in the inflation rate uh, since the mid eighties. Okay, your argument provoked quite a few responses, right? Um, and I think they included the following two critiques. One is that it's true that the uh, Nehru has been misestimated by economists again and again and again, right? That's been pretty clear in the data. It's also clear that what was traditionally thought to be the relationship in the Phillips curve um, has broken down or has at least changed in the last few decades, right? But that even so, the framework itself is a useful one for understanding the economy, right? In other words, even if you can't get it quite precisely, that's okay. It's still a useful thing to understand because if not, you have a a harder time just explaining what's going on at at any given time or even retroactively explaining things, right? That's one. Second and related is that it's a useful signaling mechanism for monetary policymakers. In other words, you still need monetary policymakers to be able to use the expectations channel for what they're going to do. And having their estimate for Nehru in place helps you because it's a guide to how they're going to adjust interest rates in the future. Now, they screw up that communications channel quite a bit as well, right? But even so, it's worth having that estimate, the Fed's own estimate in place, so that economic agents, market participants have some sense of how the Fed is going to react. What's your response to those two critiques? So because it's refreshed my mind because you just said it, the second one, I'm I'm still kind of skeptical. I mean, I feel that the value, at least traditionally, right, the value of this whole expectations channel is people talk about they want to have inflation being stable. That's that's part of the big goal and the ability to influence the economy and do things while keeping people's by keeping people's expectations of inflation stable and keeping actual inflation stable. So I'm not sure how someone articulating a belief about where unemployment should be, a belief that keeps changing, helps in that process. I think, if anything, it could be counterproductive. I mean, if we're looking at a lot of the rhetoric, especially in the past year and a half or so from the Fed, about why they want to raise interest rates and why, I'll be honest, this is a little bit more of an idiosyncratic view, why I think actually Yellen is probably on the more of the hawkish side is precisely because they're saying, well, we look like we're at full employment. But they don't really have a view for saying that they're in full employment, aside from the fact that you know historically 5% is around where the unemployment rate has hit bottom in a cycle. There's not any like fundamental reason why it's 5% and not 2%. I mean, you look at you know different country, different institutions, different way of counting it. But like in Germany, the unemployment rate in the 70s was like less than 1%. In the 60s, too, and their inflation rate was very low. So it's not really clear to me like why we think 5% is, in the U.S. for that matter, in the 1960s, unemployment rate was a lot lower. So I don't really get that. You look at the other data for inflation. I mean, you can make arguments about one way or the other. But like the, the thing that's the theme is we're getting close to full employment. Therefore, we need to raise rates. So in terms of the relationship of the dual mandate, I mean, I see it almost as being counterproductive. It's the sense, uh, I mean, if they just focus on inflation, you know, they could still be looking at unemployment if they think there's a linkage. But given that there isn't much evidence that there is a linkage, you know, putting this emphasis on Nehru, I think, is just confusing and counterproductive. Okay. I happen to think that it is a framework uh, worth preserving. My own critique of it is just that we should all be a little bit more honest about the ways it can change. It's not just that economists will often miss the target. In other words, they'll guess 
at what the Nehru is, and then they'll be proved wrong by economic outcomes. It's that the target itself is slippery and can change over time. And I see this as part of the debate over the separability of the demand and supply sides of the economy, right? That separability, I think, is an idea that increasingly is breaking down. A simple way to think about how this works in the labor market is that, okay, we get down to close to whatever the Nehru is at a given time. Inflation starts to pick up. Wages start climbing, right? But at the same time, wages climbing also means that increasingly there's a trade-off for people who have chosen to be outside of the labor force for a while. Some of them might be pulled back in, which itself changes the Nehru and lowers it, right? And at the same time, uh, companies might start, for instance, offering more training to their workers, and that increases the overall productivity potential of the economy. And that also is another way of saying that the Nehru has declined. So it it can shift up and down over time. I think we should be honest about it. But again, I I think it's a framework worth preserving. Matt, thanks for coming in. But before uh, I let you go, uh, let's do our own long-form recommendations. Uh, What do you got? Uh, I recently started reading, and I think this was actually because it was recommended to me by Michael Pettis in this this podcast, maybe a year or so ago. Is It's called The Deluge by Adam Tooze. It is a history of the world from about 1916 and 1931. Absolutely fascinating. It really takes a global perspective on how World War One and the post-war architecture and then the Great Depression influenced developments all over the world, whether it was, it was China, Japan, India, Russia, America, Europe, the whole whole king caboodle and it's just fascinating as a sense of you know how everything was linked together and how people thought that the mid-20s regime was actually a lot more stable at the time people thought it was a lot more stable than it turned out to be okay and my recommendation is a podcast called embedded which is hosted by a really badass reporter at npr called kelly mcevers it's one of the few podcasts where The host is also a reporter and is taking you along for the ride as she reports, and the results are really astonishing. And the reason I'm recommending it is that Embedded is about to launch its second season, and the first season is one of my favorite ever debuts for a podcast, so definitely check that out. And that's all the time we have for today. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code rate the show leave us a review on itunes it really does help people find out about us i'm on twitter at cardiff garcia annie is on twitter at annie lowry matt you're on twitter where m underscore c underscore k l e i n okay and you can find show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat thanks as always to the amazing amy keen there should be the universal basic income where everybody just basically gives her cash Just because she's so great. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.